Hello and welcome to a special edition of the IC Questions podcast. I'm Alex Newman, Features Editor at the IC, and today I'll be speaking to various members of the company's team to get their forward-looking view on the year ahead. So without further ado, I'm joined here by Julia Farshaw, who covers our, I guess, vice stocks and aviation and gambling sectors. And it's on those latter two sectors that we'll be talking about today. So Julia, how could recent regulatory changes affect the bookies in 2019? I mean, it was a big factor for them so far in 2018 across the UK and Australia and the US. So if we maybe start off with domestic changes, the two big ones were the fact that fixed odds betting terminals, the minimum stake was cut from £100 to £2 and that's set to take effect in April next year. And in the most recent budget, they also increased the remote gaming duty that will apply to these companies from 15% to 21%. So for UK companies, those are the big ones to look out for next year. So far, the bookies are kind of the hope is that gamblers will kind of shift to other modes of play or perhaps play more often at those lower stakes to make up at least some of that shortfall on the lower stakes for the fixed odds betting terminals. But it's going to be a big hit. It will be a big hit. There's been a lot of talk of closure of retail shops. Those are already suffering to begin with. There's just not as much footfall as there used to be. And so having those lower stakes on these quite popular machines is just going to exasperate that further. Okay. So looking beyond the UK, I mean, the US gambling market has obviously, that's been a huge story this year. What's next? In the US, yeah, the big news this year was that in May, the US Supreme Court overturned the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, better known as PASPA. And yeah, it's just been a flood of interest of these UK listed gambling companies of who can do the biggest deal in the US and who can get it first. And so far, um, GVC has kind of led the way with this partnership with MGM. Its uh, chief executive, Kenny Alexander, called it the deal that everybody wanted. And he's betting that the US will become the world's biggest regulated market for gambling in the next five years. So that's uh, those are some big forecasts to make. And others that have made some steps there, William Hills announced a partnership with Eldorado Resorts. And it's an exclusive partnership in the sense that Eldorado can't partner with anyone else, but it still gives William Hill the opportunity to find other deals that it can do there. Paddy Power Betfair also bought uh, US fantasy sports website FanDuel last year. So I think it's going to try and capitalize on that a lot more. So in summary, the two big trends we've seen here, domestic pressure for the the gambling firms, but opportunity in the US set to continue. That's right. Yeah. Uh, So turning to aviation, Julia, how do you expect the ongoing capacity crunch to affect the European airlines next year? I mean, in the most recent year, it's kind of begun to really show even further who's kind of the big winners and losers in this space. And probably the one that struggled the most recently is Flybe. It's put itself up for sale. Yeah. So next year, it'll be quite curious to see whether someone actually comes in and scoops it up or whether it just kind of has to face life going it alone still. But it, it looks likely that a deal could come through. Uh, Virgin's been in discussions right now to potentially buy the whole thing. EasyJet has... Uh, expressed interest in perhaps buying parts of it. It has quite a history of doing that with other struggling airlines or collapsed airlines, such as this year it spent a lot of time integrating the airport slots it bought from Air Berlin after it collapsed at the Berlin-Tegel Airport. 
Okay, and then the other the other big question, I suppose, for uh, anyone watching the airlines in 2019 is what's going to happen with Brexit? Julia, you can give us the definitive answer on uh, on how that's going to affect the. Yeah, uh, my the uh, my fortune telling is really good on this one, yeah. but uh, the I mean, it's it's all the airline bosses seem quite nervous about this mm. because it, the sector doesn't have a World Trade Organization guideline to fall back on if they fall out without a deal or anything. And so, and it would also lose all of its benefits from the current Open Skies Agreement. And the two that kind of look best prepared for this um, out of the listed companies are EasyJet and Wizz Air, kind of for the opposite reasons. EasyJet's a UK-based company that has uh, got an air operator certificate now established in Austria so that it can, its bosses say it's prepared for sort of any scenario. And Wizz Air is sort of the opposite. It's a European uh, Eastern European-based airline, and it's established a UK air operator certificate. Ryanair says that they've applied for it, but haven't given an update, particularly on what how that's progressing. I assume it's probably going well, but uh, okay. they have kind of indicated that they might have to restrict the voting rights on some of its non-EU shareholders right. in the event of a no deal. Okay, so turbulent months ahead, potentially, for the uh, airline sector. Julia, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Alex. I'm now joined by uh, Harriet Russell, who is our retail correspondent. Harriet, there's still a lot to play for in retail in 2018, given that the peak trading period has only just started. What are the early indications around how well the sector is faring in the lead up to Christmas? Yeah, it's it's a funny time of year for many people's sectors. Things are sort of winding down or going into closed periods. And for retail, we're we're only really just getting started. And it will be a period that goes right through now till the end of January. And anyone who covers the sector or, or knows it will know that the end of January is particularly busy. That's when we get much more of a picture about how Christmas went. But regular listeners to the podcast will also know that Black Friday kicked off. And the early indication is a really mixed picture, to be honest. A lot of the trends were exactly as we were expecting, so record sales. But as per usual, these are mostly online and footfall on the high street is down 5%. So in terms of those sort of long-term trends affecting the sector, they're still the same. And the damage that has been done to margins or the pull-forward effect that we get now from Christmas into Black Friday, that still sort of remains to be seen. But from previous years, you know, we can assume a certain amount. Yeah. Would you say in we're looking ahead past January into into 2019 and whatever the lessons are going to be from this Christmas trading period, is this, you know, the slow continuation of these themes or or do you expect this that you know the next year there're going to be abrupt changes in the in the sector to either arrest some of this margin you know continual margin decline or, or otherwise in a way 2018 saw quite a sort of coming to a head yeah. of, of these factors already because we had several high profile collapses uh, House of Fraser Toys R Us Maplin all of those sorts of companies and we also had a number of big CVAs from Mothercare Carpetright so a lot of those kind of lesser quality or companies that had really been struggling in the last couple of years you know a lot of them did crack already mm. this year will there be further pain in 2019 undoubtedly is the answer who's at risk I mean <laughs> far be it for me to sit here and just say sell this or sell that but you know the big department stores that that will be a question Debenhams in particular has huge exposure to the high street and of course next year we get the introduction of I4S 16 on the lease obligations so we will have or investors will have much 
more of a clear picture on just what sort of financial exposure these companies have to those leases, which will ultimately, from that point, be treated like any other debt. Sure. And everything determining this ultimately is consume, you know, consumer appetite and consumer confidence. What are the big themes we, we already expect in, in 2019 on, on those fronts? It's, it's very tied to the political situation. So um, as, as nonsensical as that might be, and you know, I'll leave sort of personal debate on that um, to one side. But we have seen this year that, or really since 2016, that there has been um, a sort of irrefutable tie between consumer confidence and what's been going on in the political spectrum. And next year, of course, as we run into March, that will be a very interesting time to see which way it goes and how people respond. People respond very emotionally Mm. to political events via their spending. So whether we get any kind of read on the GFK Consumer Confidence Index on how that is affecting things will definitely be something to look out for. Sure thing. You know, the internet, obviously, the the big uh, other story connected to retail for I suppose uh, more than a decade now. It's changed the sector beyond measure, but is there any any, any further change afoot or any change in, in, in online strategy or e-commerce strategy from any of the re- traditionally high street retailers? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because, you know, as you say, it's been such a long-term trend and maybe five years ago we were talking about Debenhams, Marks and Spencers having to get their online operations up to scratch. You know, they've got to start developing better websites. They've got to start developing logistics operations or warehousing. That's kind of, we've seen that through now um, and a lot of those companies do have or have invested in extensive distribution and technological sort of updates to bring their websites up to scratch. What it will be now is seeing whether that proportion of online growth can offset the damage that is being done via discounting on the high street and to what extent they'll start slimming those high street estates down because they'll just be surplus to requirements. The costs will just outweigh any sort of profit that they're making from a physical location. So rather than it just being investment in online, I think we're going to see much more of a sort of augmentation or a reconfiguring of those businesses now um, to sort of prioritise the digital side much more. And of course, you know, we have market leaders like Amazon continuing to set the agenda on that. So depending, for instance, if Amazon makes any more sort of big acquisitions like they did in grocery not too long ago, then that can obviously have a knock-on effect onto those sectors and like it has done in grocery, spark a huge wave of M&A or consolidation. Grocery sometimes gets left out of this conversation, um, strangely, but obviously that is a sector which has undergone tremendous change this year as well. And I suppose next year, the big thing that people will be looking for is confirmation that the Sainsbury's and Asda merger has uh, has gone through. Sure. So in, in summary, broadly bearish, I think, generally, <laughs> but with a few, a few potential winners out there. Yeah, I always, you know, people always say to me that covering the retail sector must be so doom and gloom at the moment. And I like to say that it is a market going through massive structural change and it is a sector in flux, but that should give rise to opportunity. And perhaps you just have to let go <laughs> of certain companies. And that's difficult. You know, mm. people like M&S are very much tied into our national heritage and our sort of national identity. So whether people can fully let go of that sort of emotional side of investing will be interesting to see. But yeah, I'm actually going to say that I'm a bullish on it because I feel like there are opportunities in the sector. And there are, we, you know, we've had some very successful IPOs in the last couple of years as well. So it's it's not without promise. Uh, it's just about making wise and perhaps limited decisions. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Harriet. I'm now joined by our property guru, Jonas Crosland. Jonas, looking back at uh, 2018 and looking forward to 2019, how 
are things faring for the house builders? How are they set to perform in, in the year ahead? I think the year ahead will probably bring more of the same, but not as much of it. House price inflation has uh, drifted away to nothing in, in many regions. At the same time, input cost inflation is running at 3 or 4%. So you're going to see some pressure building on margins. Also, new house sales are a little bit difficult in some areas, especially the high end. And you're going to see house builders using more incentives, uh, you know, free stamp duty, filling up the kitchen with nice bits and pieces. That will all impact on margins. So they're still going to be profitable, but it just won't be as prolific as it has been in the last two or three years. The major thing that's underpinning at the moment is obviously the help to buy scheme was extended for another two years, albeit in a slightly trimmed form, but that gives them a little bit of visibility and, and they'll just continue. Mm. Perhaps the, uh, the, the one area where they could go into is partnership deals. Some companies already do this. Uh, you just basically build affordable houses on council land in conjunction with a local authority, which makes it a lot easier. Mm. The idea is that you stick on a few of your own private homes as well to sell. But it, it's the way forward because it's not cyclically as vulnerable as uh, the main housing private market. Mm. So in in some ways, a bit of living on borrowed time slightly there, but also, you know, the, the sector is uh, notoriously a, a kind of a political sector in, in a way. We obviously were a few months away from potentially uh, leaving the EU. We look at this sector. Are there any areas of it where which are which you'd classify as bomb proof, or is it all all at risk potentially? Well, I suppose countryside properties would be the uh, the one standout because right. a lot of its um, development work is in league with local authorities. It's difficult in a way because um, house builders tend to be cyclical, but only in the same way as the economy is. If the economy is strong, house builders are usually strong. Where they're facing a problem this time is because wage price inflation has lagged behind retail price inflation. And there's been a squeeze on affordability. And I think that's one of the reasons why house price inflation is easing, because people are just getting priced out of the market. Many have called the death of the London property market in, in recent years. Where do things stand uh, in, in, in sort of prime London uh, property in 2019? Much better than most people uh, were expecting. Mm. After the referendum, it was generally assumed that everybody would leave and set up shop somewhere inside the uh, EU. That simply hasn't happened. A lot of tech companies have invaded North London, and there are a number of big, big companies taking new space. What has happened is that the property companies have eased back on their speculative developments, which basically means just at a time when demand is holding up, supply is drying up. If you take the cranes in London and take off the pre-let cranes and residential cranes, there's virtually nothing left. There's obviously parts of London that can be developed, but uh, it's going to take time. The amount of new square footage coming onto the market in 2019 is significantly less than uh, what's going to be required. So, no, London's fine. It's, it's, it's doing quite well. Any big picks for, for investors in that space then? Well, the sectors to concentrate on, I would say, are, well, there's two. One is um, primary health care, 
primary health care, there's three companies in that, basically because it's uh, Brexit-proof. People get old um, and Brexit's not going to stop that. They get ill and likewise. That's a bit of a slow burner, but it, it, it will take off eventually. But the hot one is uh, urban logistics companies like London Metric, Seagro, building distribution warehouses um, to take advantage of the surge in e-commerce. That's quite significant because after the recession, there was virtually no new supply. And now it's still, the rents haven't grown enough, so it's still too expensive to build. Mm. So uh, you're just going to see rents going up. So those are the ones to watch. Okay. I've got the feeling we may be saying a similar thing in a, in a year's time. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. I'm now joined by our uh, latest arrival to the company's team, Alex Janio, who covers industrials and the now burgeoning car company sector on the London Stock Exchange. So Alex, just looking back to 2018, can you just provide a little overview of some of the events which have taken place this year uh, affecting the industrial sector and, and how that's likely to to impact on uh, events in the, in the coming year? Thanks, Alex. So the immediate and obvious answer is the UK's exit from the European Union. Uh, uncertainty around Brexit has hit supply chains, and the industrial sector is arguably one of the most vo- one of the most vocal mm. when it comes to voicing their concerns over Brexit. We don't know what the outcome is going to be like, so I wouldn't wish to be drawn too much on commenting on that. Before either side of the debate leap on me for bringing up the B word, I would also actually point to actions of the European Union themselves and the impact that they have had on the industrial sector. Um, most prominent in the form of the worldwide harmonised light vehicles test. So, you know, this came out uh, in the aftermath of the Volkswagen emission scandal a few years ago, who, by the way, arguably have done quite well since, uh, but that's for another day. So a company like Ricardo, you know, excellent engineering consultancy, uh, issued a profit warning earlier this year. Um, both Brexit and this emissions test mm. have been blamed. You know, the test has caused backlogs in testing facilities uh, up and down the land. But they're actually very well positioned going forward. Uh, they've got plants technologies across the world um, they're ready for a potential shift in the UK's economic uh, trajectory away from the UK and away from the EU mm. but the reality is companies are going to have to continue to adjust uh, to these two events that have taken place I would also point to you know the weather We've, we think about uh, the harsh weather that we experienced at the beginning of the year and there were companies that were affected um, in order delays so companies like Hill and Smith an infrastructure engineer um, there are a lot of delays to their UK road projects now you know perhaps like Brexit and emission scandals from across the pond uh, across the channel even um, this is not something that we can immediately respond to but how do companies diversify away from one region rather than leaving all your orders potentially vulnerable to a storm in the UK. So we take someone like Hill and Smith, who have made a couple of acquisitions in the US. Uh, a lot of that, they say, is down to resolving the issues concerning capacity, and that's a positive move. Um, but I would also say beyond that, being diverse geographically can only be a good thing and ensure that in a sector like this, you know, if it's pounding down outside, you just can't do anything. You can't, t- you can't accept orders and you can't act upon them. I would keep an eye out for companies that are responding to... Well, responding to the issues of Brexit, looking to increase capacity, streamlining their testing procedures, and also just trying to deal with the weather, really. Mm. So that's a big theme, you think, potentially on the, on an M&A front, that, that you know, diversification being one way to insulate yourself from any regional challenges. Signs of sure. when you, you've been speaking to the, the industrial firms that m and come? Yeah, growth in the US market is huge right now. The US economy is red hot. Um, a lot of that's to do with President Trump's uh, swing tax cuts and general good sentiment in the US economy and lots of lots of businesses in my sector are looking uh, to the US uh, in order to 
really acquire uh, growth. Right. And then, as we sort of touched on at the top, uh, thanks to Aston Martin, we now have a nascent car sector in, on the London Stock Exchange. The listing probably hasn't gone quite as well as they would have liked so far. Does that change in, in 2019? Sure. Well, just to recap, so they listed in October, mm. share price around £19. It's now down to around 14 Now, actually, no, they posted some pretty good numbers in their most recent, well, their, their first results, so the Q3 results as a public company, but they still miss expectations. And the questions are, the question really, is this a good business? Um, and I think we're going to see a lesson in not allowing a great story distract from the investment case here. This is a company that has been bankrupt seven times. You know, last year it posted its first profit in a decade. Uh, there are questions over its brand equity and it has huge amounts of debt. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's an exciting, you know, it's an exciting process. It's a sexy listing mm. but it's very hard to value there's not much guidance either available for Aston Martin at the moment jury's out the jury's say. out yeah. you know investor like George Soros as French fund uh, coming and I've taken a short position I think it's probably going to get a bit worse for Aston yeah. Martin before it gets any better but still want to watch this because you know it's still a great story yeah, yeah. so that's one which we're maybe a bit uh, sceptical a bit mm. bearish about on the other side industrials is obviously it's 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 very hard to talk about industrials in it in broad brush terms so looking slightly more specifically about you know some of the companies which you think have a strong year ahead of them or are guiding for a, a strong year ahead could you pick out any uh, dark horses for 2019 yeah there's a couple of companies really and there's one there's a safety equipment manufacturer called Halma posts strong organic growth they're focused on profitability in niche markets really good return on capital employed but at the moment it's quite an expensive stock mm. so we probably wait a better entry point but definitely one to watch out for there's a company that I really like and a couple of recent is Johnson Matthews so mm. they do sustainable technologies and a lot of that's to do with cars now they are developing and are ready to almost ready to produce a new battery technology they take quite a strong view and maybe contrarian is a bit too strong but a strong view on the trajectory of the car industry when it comes to hybrids and electric vehicles right so you listen to most people talking saying electric vehicles are here then and they're you know Volvo and everyone we're going to be producing them next week and Uber fleets are just going to be autonomous battery power things everywhere I mean certainly I think we can say from the UK perspective we're not a country that's hugely serious when it comes to investing in the infrastructure required to support that they take the view that hybrids are the way to go for now but the point is Johnson Matthews with this battery technology they can cater to both they can cater to hybrid cars and they can cater to EVs so assuming that they're right and you know particularly when we look at hybrid cars we look at the improving kind of switching mechanisms in them you know they've always been there you, you know the back of a prize and it goes from being on the engine to suddenly on the battery these are actually getting better and better all the time and there's a lot to be invested in there um, so Johnson Matthew will be hoping that this trend continues that hybrids continue and even if they don't even if suddenly we find ourselves surrounded by electric vehicles they'll be in a position to capitalise upon that they're a company I'd really recommend looking out for excellent stuff Alex thanks so much for your time cheers thank you I'm now joined in the studio by Harriet Clarfelt, who covers a sprawling range of sectors for us. One of those includes payments, which has been a you know red hot sector for for several years uh, now, particularly when it comes to M and A. Uh, so, Harriet, what do you see as some of the uh, being some of the factors which are, are going to drive M and A in the payment sector in the year ahead? We've we've had some consolidation in in the in the past few years, but what's what's on the tables for uh, for for 2019? As you just said. 
payments has become this kind of hot sector, although it doesn't sound particularly yeah. exciting. And it's it's almost, I mean, I should say I call it a sector because it has almost emerged as a, a mini sector mm. in itself. And we have seen quite a bit of M&A activity over the past couple of years. And I think the same factors are going to drive that going forward. So first of all, um, obviously, so many aspects of our lives are underpinned by technology now, and that extends to payments too. You know, where with the sort of rise of internet connectivity, with global e-commerce, the, the institutions that are facilitating our payments online are just vitally important. And um, we're seeing that in the fact that you know people are, are using cash far less often. You know, whether whether you're paying for something on your mobile device or on your laptop, it's all going digital. The other kind of factor driving this all is regulatory change. So at the beginning of this year, the European Second Payment Services Directive, <laughs> which is shortened to PSD2, came into mm-hmm. effect. So it's a bit of a mouthful. But um, that's essentially allowed customers to open up their payments data beyond their kind of traditional incumbent banks, meaning that, you know, fintech companies and challenger banks payments institutions that are sort of driven by technology can have a piece of the payments pie, can sort of access our really useful, important data. For those reasons, I suppose you can see why payments companies are increasingly attractive as takeover targets or as um, merger partners. Just to give you a sense of what we've seen so far, you know, WorldPay merged with the US payments giant Vantiv and a huge deal last year. PaySafe got taken off the market by private equity. And I think going forwards, you know, we are left with fewer um, mm. London-listed payments companies, but there are still some listed on AIM. And just to give you an example, I mean, there's Echo, which specialises in secure payments. Security is obviously, and, and data privacy, obviously, really hot topics as well at yeah. the moment with GDPR this year. There's SafeCharge, it's another company still listed on AIM. And there's also FairFX. Um, those are all actually IC buy tips, and we're really mm. positive on them, whether or not they become takeover targets. But FairFX kind of specialises in international payments and multi-currency payments. The thing I should say about all of those companies, and obviously this is an issue I deal with with lots of companies yeah. in my sort of tech and software sectors, is that they are highly rated. They yeah. are very expensive. And that's obviously something that potential bidders would take into account. Sure in a big way before yeah. opting to go any further. But um, that's so a very long-winded answer. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> so, uh, and, and on traditional metrics, it's, 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 it's sometimes hard to, on valuation grounds, to to say that, you know, that you know, this is a, a share worth worth having. Absolutely. And it often tends to be, as you, I think you pointed to, to before, the proprietary technology... <laughs> lines that they have which may offer an exponential uh, growth that even yeah. you know, surpasses their sort of 20 30 times PE multiples they may be setting on. Definitely. And I think it's, you know, the reasons for M&A are, are really quite varied. And I think yeah. they're probably quite case specific. You know, if it's a payments company like we saw with Vantiv, kind of buying, kind of merging with, with WorldPay here in the UK, it looked like it was really about scale, about gaining new geographies, really becoming a global company. And we've already seen their payment volumes have just massively increased right. since, since the merger. But equally, it's, it's not just payments companies doing this. You know, a bank, a sort of traditional bank might decide actually, I'm going to buy um, this sort of tech-driven payments company. It might be a startup, for example, but it just adds a sort of digital edge that it didn't have before. Or, you know, with all this regulatory change going on, it could be that a company actually needs access to a particular market and access to the regulation in that market that it doesn't already have. So tying this together, I mean, we've seen some in the in the last couple of months, some uh, market turmoil. The pound looks like it's going to come under greater pressure potentially in the months ahead. Putting that together with these very highly sought after potentially comp- you know, companies 
companies. Does that create an environment for M&A in the months ahead? Do you expect to still have three aim-listed companies, in other words, this time next year? Well, there are, I mean, I should say there are, that was just there a handful. Further, there, yeah. are, there are more. I suppose, if anything, given that we've seen more generally a lot of companies' share prices fall, some might see it as a sort of buying opportunity. Yeah. I assume it'll be the case for several sectors that, you know, potential bidders will want to see how Brexit plays out um, before going any further with a potential takeover situation. I mean, again, it's case specific. It's clear that there is, that these companies are really attractive. It's just what they can bring to the company taking them over. You know, if it's just what they already have, you know, they have the same kind of technologies. Is there much point in them taking them over? So they've got to offer something different. Sure. Harriet Clifford, thanks for your time. Thank you. And so from payments to lenders, related sector, I'm joined now by Emma Powell, our banking guru. So Emma, looking ahead to 2019, are the UK's major lenders' income paying status now assured or could a bad Brexit derail their ability to boost dividends? Or is there any other red herring or black swan you see which could hit that income case? I think Brexit, certainly for the kind of domestically focused lenders like Barclays, Lloyds, RBS, seems to be the, one of the biggest threats on the horizon next year. For HSBC and Standard Chartered, I think it's more, you know, emerging markets focus, dollar strength, any potential impact of trade wars. But I think it's important to kind of look back at this year and and see that it has been a, a year of kind of major progress, actually, for the UK's lenders. You know, you've had RBS return to dividends for the first time in a decade. Standard Chartered have recommenced um, paying dividends on, you know, they, they've improved their kind of costs and their returns. I mean, ultimately, with with the lenders, it does come down to how well capitalised they are. And they are very well capitalised now. For instance, RBS, about 16.1% at the end of September, um, which is way ahead of its target. They've gotten rid of a lot of these kind of one-off charges for Standard Chartered and HSBC. Those would be kind of of commodity-related exposures that they've had, bad loans in that area. For Barclays, it's been, uh, you know, the FSFO said they're not going to press charges relating to its 2008 fundraising. You know, RBS are settled with the DOJ. So that's really good for profitability and for returns and for their income-paying status. But obviously, next year, the concern, and it's one that actually RBS has acknowledged with this kind of Brexit buffer they set up um, during the third quarter where they took this impairment charge against the threat of retail customers, but more really kind of SMEs defaulting on their loan repayments. That's the obvious threat, isn't it, really, Um, which would hurt returns, which may then hit their capital levels and mean they have to hold more capital back. I mean, it's difficult to see, isn't it? You know, it's the big unknown Brexit, you know, which way that's going to go. The only thing I would say is, again, pointing back to how well capitalised they are, but also the fact is that the shares of all five big lenders are trading at 12-month lows or around 12-month lows at the moment. I'd argue that actually both the risks of Brexit and the risk of you know, further trade wars is being quite well accounted for right. in those valuations. So I don't think, you know, we've actually got most of the major lenders on buys. HSBC is a buy tip, as is Lloyd's. Those are the kind of favourites, I would say, within the sector. They're well capitalised, they're paying good dividends. I, I, I can't see I think something dramatic would have to happen for those to be cut. Is that generally the consensus view? Has has a lot of the analyst world turned very bullish on uh, I know you've had some activist investor sentiment, which is sometimes a sign of a turning uh, market. 
are you on board with a lot of analysts in 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 your bullishness? I think so. Yeah, I mean, analysts certainly are, are a lot more bullish, and it is, and a big part of it is because. You know, where we are 10 years on from the financial crisis, a lot of the, and you know, and that's taken obviously a while for the, the big banks to get back on their feet. But even things like PPI is running off next year, there's deadline for that. So, yeah, I mean, analysts are, are, are very bullish on, on the banking sector. Yeah. And what about the asset managers? Is there uh, any hope for them given the sort of fears of a prolonged equity market downturn? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of inevitable, wasn't it, in some ways, given prolonged quantitative easing. It's just been great for asset managers because there's been so much money flooding into um, kind of passive strategies, particularly. They've done very well, um, but also active managers. I mean, things like pensions and things like that have, have really helped them because obviously if I'm a pension scheme manager, I've got to have someone manage my money. Yeah. It is turning now for asset managers that have quite big exposures to equities. Like we've had updates quite recently for Polar Capital and Lion Trust in particular, I'm thinking of, uh, both kind of active asset managers, big exposures to equities. And they've both reported actually quite a marked fall in assets under management since the end of September. And that's literally just up until the end of October, beginning of November, like marked. And that really, they've said, is not actually people saying we're not going to put business with you. So it's not because of outflows. It's because of market movements. Mm. And, you know, traditionally, we look at out net inflows or outflows as uh, more important than kind of market fluctuations. But actually... Really, it's it's not good either way because obviously they earn their um, they earn their revenue based upon the value of the assets they manage um, as a percentage of that. So either way, if there is a big fall in assets, that's not going to be great, and it definitely is going to be harder, I think, going forward for asset managers to make money. So a difficult year ahead potentially in twenty nineteen. Obviously, yes. depending on how equity markets do more broadly. Well, yes, exactly. Although, I guess, given what we've said about kind of the end of quantitative easing, yeah. turn away from growth, maybe into kind of value stocks. I think, yeah, it's going to be a not a good year for that sector. Good stuff. Emma, thanks very much for your time. And thank you for listening. And to all our company's writers for taking us through the forward-looking views for their patches. If you want to listen to more Investors Chronicle podcasts, go to iTunes, Acast or wherever you normally find your podcasts. Thank you. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.